Welcome to the Mosaic Church Sermon Podcast. Mosaic Church seeks to engage the modern age with the historic Christian faith. If you don't have a home church, please don't use this podcast as a substitute for being a member of a local community of faith. Whether you call Mosaic your home or not, we hope that you find this sermon convicting and encouraging in your walk with Jesus. Here's our lead pastor, Pastor Greg Brown, with this week's sermon. If you don't know me, my name is Greg Brown. I'm the lead pastor here at Mosaic, and it is a pleasure and an honor, as always, to address you with the Word of God this morning. Um, Over the next several weeks, we are finally going to finish our study through the book of Mark. We began this series in 2020. Isn't that crazy? Kind of verse by verse, passage by passage through this book, and we started this in, I think, September 2020 is where my notes have it. So we're just about two years in the book of Mark with some other stuff interspersed. This is sort of the the main warp and woof of uh, Mosaic Church. We like to go through books of the Bible and ask of the scriptures, what has God said? We're not interested in man's opinions. We're not interested in whatever it is that's top of mind for me this morning. We're interested in what God is saying through his word. And so we're going to continue this series in Mark, and then uh, we're going to finish that before we get to uh, the Advent season. We'll do a few weeks in Advent, just kind of leading up to Christmas. Christmas Day is on a Sunday, and we will be having service, by the way. Uh, So we will uh, give you more details on that. I don't think we'll have it here. Uh, We're going to do it in a special location at a special time. We'll let you guys know uh, when that happens. Um, and then we're going to actually head into uh, the, the minor prophet Joel uh, in the first part of 2023, and we're kind of excited about that. I don't know that I've known a whole lot of people who have preached through Joel, uh, and I, I'm just excited to, to get into Joel and uh, just plumb the depths of it for a little while uh, and see what God has to say to us in that particular book. But like I said, this is the normal rhythm of this church. We like to go through books of the Bible. We want to ask what God has said. And so we're going to pick this story back up right where we left off. Uh, We're going to be in Mark chapter 14, starting in verse 53, if you'd like to start flipping there, if you've got a physical Bible or tapping there, if you're on your phone, or you can just look at the screens. That's fine too. By the way, if you don't have a physical Bible and you would like one, there's free ones at the Connection Center. You don't even have to sign anything. All you have to do is promise us you'll actually read it. That's all you have to do. And you don't even have to verbally say that. We're just going to assume that you are doing it. So just walk by and snag one, okay? If you don't have a, a Bible, that's our gift to you. Again, Mark chapter 14, verses 53. We're going through uh, verse 65 today. Why don't you guys stand with me as we read God's word, if you are able. We do this uh, to, out of respect for God's word. We understand the Bible to be the inerrant, infallible word of God here at Mosaic. And so uh, we are going to stand in reverence for what God is saying to us this morning through his word. Again, Mark chapter 14, verses 53 through 65, they say this, and they led Jesus to the high priest and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself by the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. 
And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet, even about this, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard this blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's go to him in prayer. Lord, I pray that this morning you would help us to see Jesus for who he truly is. Lord, let us not accept falsehoods. Let us not accept false testimony about him. But Lord, help us to see him for who he truly is according to your word that you have revealed to us. I pray, Lord God, that this morning you would Lord, well up in us a joy that is beyond imagining because Jesus suffered for us. I pray, Lord God, that you would most of all simply reveal yourself to us, that, Lord, we would be changed by simply beholding your glory. We pray that your Holy Spirit would apply the word to our hearts this morning. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. You guys can have a seat. So you might remember where we're at in the story. You might not. So here's a little bit of a recap. I don't know, sometimes you guys, maybe you're the ones who skip the recap on the, on the shows on Netflix and stuff like that. I'm going to give you the recap. You can't skip this one. I'm sorry. So if you remember kind of where we're at, though, we're just after the Garden of Gethsemane. So Jesus has had the Last Supper with his disciples. He's instantiated that as, a, as, a, as this uh, ordinance, this sacrament that we actually celebrate every single week. And he gives this to them, and uh, he foretells his betrayal. And Judas, uh, we find from uh, other gospel accounts, simply stands up and leaves the, the dinner there. And then they finish the dinner and they sing a hymn and they go out to the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus says, I'm going to spend some time in prayer. Will you come with me? He brings the 12 with him. He brings the three even closer. That's uh, Peter, James, and John. And uh, he, he brings them in even closer. And, but then he says, you know what, I, guys, I need to, would you stay up and pray for me as I pray? And then he goes on a little bit further by himself to pray. And this is where Jesus begins to sweat great drops of blood because of the stress that has been placed on his physical body with this upcoming death. And he prays that that cup might pass from him if it is the Father's will, and we find that it was not the Father's will to let the cup pass from him. And so we find that Judas comes and betrays him with a kiss. He comes up and calls him teacher, rabbi, kisses him and 
marks him out as the one that this crowd of people with swords and clubs are meant to take by force. And yet Jesus goes willingly. He says, simply, day after day I was with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. It's 14, 49. He says, let the scriptures be fulfilled. This is the last thing we see of Jesus uh, before the passage that we just read. And there's really no passage of time here. This is all one narrative. There's no, uh, you know, they took him to jail and then they brought him back out. No, this is, the, this is the middle of the night. This is after dinner. He's been praying for some time. I mean, this is probably midnight, 2 a.m. that all this stuff is happening. It's, it's very, very dark and late. And so they bring him where? Not to the court, but to the high priest's house. This is a strange place to be. Look again at verses 53 and 54. It says, And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together, and Peter had followed them at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. In other gospel accounts, we find that this is actually not the high priest's office, it's the high priest's house. They come to this guy in the middle of the night, This is a weird place and time for a trial, isn't it? It's a strange place. Have you guys ever heard of a murder trial taking place in secret in the dead of night with only a select few people? Not not normal, is it? Even in our culture, not normal stuff. Kind of strange to be doing something like that. In fact, this this is a very strange court proceeding in general. How many of you guys like uh, watching uh, court cases and such on TV or on YouTube? Come on, raise your hands. Some of you like it. A few people, all right, all right, yeah. My, my wife loves this stuff. Uh, I don't, I, I'm not a big fan because I'm like, I see enough darkness in the world. I don't need to see even more. Uh, but man, like she, she loves this stuff. And, and it's so serious though, right? It's so serious because th- some of this stuff is life and death for a real person, Right? It's very serious, and it's very by the book. Well, at least it should be, right? It should be very ordered, and there should be process and procedure for everything so that we make sure that jurisprudence is followed and so that the whole proceeding is fair and impartial. Those court proceedings are very official, but what we see here with Jesus is uh, if you were going to draw a contrast, it's like a, a murder trial that you're watching uh, versus like Judge Judy. These guys are like putting together a Judge Judy court case. They're like setting this thing aside. They make it look like a court because they've got some of the right people. But the thing is, it really is life and death. It really is life and death for Jesus. But they've kind of taken all the, the normal legitimacy out of the normal court proceeding because they're doing it in the middle of the night at some other location and they've only probably asked certain people to be there. Again, middle of the night, you've got to have some plans. You have to have, have your, uh, your servants ready to get you from one place to another and all that good stuff. So they, they came and they got Jesus. They took him to the house of the high priest and it says, and all the chief priests and elders and the scribes came together, Right? They probably skipped someone like Joseph of Arimathea uh, who lent his tomb to Jesus. He was one of the 
the uh, ruling class. They probably skipped him that night just so that, you know, he wouldn't be able to dissent. They brought together a, a whole slew of people who would be willing to testify against Jesus and wouldn't stop this abnormal court proceeding. Because normal court cases were heard next to the temple. There's a spot next to the temple where the court cases would have been heard in that day. And they would have been heard during the day where everybody could see what was going on. Not only that, these capital cases had to last at least five hours. This one didn't last that long. And there had to be two court hearings in order to try a capital case. If you were going to sentence someone to death, you had to meet twice. But they seemed to only want to meet once and to condemn him quickly. This whole thing is both staged, just like a, an episode of Judge Judy, and yet very real. Just, they are dead set on getting Jesus dead. And then we have, so we have this weird sort of court proceeding happening, and then we have, we have Peter warming himself by the fire. This is a strange occurrence too, isn't it? It's a, it's a weird place for Peter to be. At least I think it is. Peter was close enough to see Jesus. He was close enough to hear what was going on. But he was far enough away not to be associated with Jesus. He came forward and tried to blend in with all the servants of the high priests and the, the chief priests and, and all of them. And he was like, I'm going to make sure that nobody knows that I was associated with him. But like, you know, I'm kind of, I'm here for you, Jesus. I'm like this, this far away. Kind of a strange place for Peter, considering the promises that he had made. Look at Mark 14, 29. Peter says to Jesus, after he foretells all of the disciples will fall away, Peter says to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. What a, what a bold promise. When Jesus prophesies something and you say, nah, -uh, it's a bold promise, and yet Peter has already failed. We see in 1450, they all left him and fled, including Peter. But then Peter and Peter. He, he thinks, ah, maybe I need to go see what's going on. So he follows them, and he comes to the courtyard of the high priest, and he's kind of sitting outside. But he's still too afraid. He's still too scared to risk his life for Jesus. And that's another promise that he made in 1431. He said emphatically, that's Peter, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. Man. So he doubled down. He said, no, Jesus, your prophecy cannot possibly be true, and I will even die with you. And yet here is Peter, disguising himself as a servant, standing outside, not willing to align himself with Jesus. I wouldn't mark this that he's, that he's nearby. I wouldn't mark that as a uh, mark of faithfulness in Peter. That's not what's going on there. Peter's curious. Maybe he's, he's, he's like, I'm adjacent to what's going on, but uh, I, I'm not going to go any further than to say that 
maybe he was curious or was maybe trying to be there to some extent, but I'm not going to mark this as any kind of faithfulness because there's a way to be close to Jesus without actually walking with him, isn't there? Like Peter was no better off and perhaps was even worse off than those who ran away to the hills completely. Because he was like, maybe, maybe in his mind he was thinking, well, if I'm near him, then that's kind of fulfilling my promise a little bit. No. He's no better off than those who ran away completely. He's still outside. Are you walking with Jesus today? Are you bearing your cross day by day? Are you willing to be associated with Christ? Look, being associated with Christ, even just like it was here, is, is dangerous today, isn't it? It's dangerous. It's dangerous to your sin. You know, all those little things that you like to hold on to, being close to Jesus is dangerous to those sins because being close to Jesus is an inhospitable environment for the growth of sin. Right? You, you think of how do you kill uh, infections and things like that, well, or, or if you've got like, bacteria growing in, uh, in something, well, you put it in the oven, right? Like, and you kill all of that bacteria. It makes it an inhospitable environment for that bacteria. Likewise, if you're standing close to Jesus, if you have the Holy Spirit within you, then it is an inhospitable environment for your sin. Being close to Jesus is not only dangerous to your sin, though, it's dangerous to your relationships, dangerous to your relationships. There are people in your life who will hate you for loving Jesus. And if you smell like him, look like him, they are going to ostracize you. It's dangerous even to your family. There are families who will be torn apart and divided along those lines. Walking with Jesus is dangerous to your livelihood. There is a point coming in this country where we will find ourselves so at odds with the vast majority of jobs that we won't be able to take them in good conscience. We won't be able to continue in those places because we're forced to endorse things that we cannot possibly endorse. Walking closely with Jesus is going to mean your livelihood sometimes. But ultimately, walking with Jesus may be dangerous to your life. That's what Peter was afraid of here. Being close to Jesus would have cost him everything. He would have been put to death with Jesus, just like he said he would go. But he loved it too much. He loved his life far too much. And yet, the Jesus that, that I know is worth everything, isn't he? Is the Jesus that you believe in worth it to leave everything behind? Is that your Jesus? Because if it's not your Jesus, you don't believe in the Jesus of the Bible. Because the Jesus of the Bible is worth absolutely everything. Every single thing in your entire life, it's, he's worth everything. There's a parable, the parable of the, the treasure buried in a field. I love this parable. You hear me talk about it consistently. Maybe I should preach a sermon on that sometime. But the parable is simply this. A man goes to a field and he finds treasure buried in it. And knowing that that treasure is buried there, 
he goes and sells everything he has simply to buy that field because he knows what's there. He knows the value of that field. He's willing to give up everything for that field. Jesus is worth it all. He's worth it because we get a relationship with God, our creator. If, if we got nothing else, that would be worth it. If we got nothing else, being able to live as God created us for his glory would be enough. But we get more. We get eternity. We get eternity. Do you recognize that that's a blessing, that that's a grace? It's over and above. We get joy peace in the midst of all sorts of trials. We get steadfastness. In the um, kids' welcome bags uh, that we uh, started giving out, or about to start giving out today, we, uh, we created a little packet of cards that have the fruits of the Spirit on them. And I think of those things. Right? I think of all these wonderful blessings that we have in Christ. We get all of that on top of a relationship, a justified, a made-right relationship with God the Father. We get all these other things. We get love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, all those wonderful things. Because God will work those things in us as we walk with Jesus. Look, any so-called Savior that isn't worth everything is not the Savior we worship. That's not Jesus. Because Jesus is worth it all. But there are many, many, many false Christs in this world. And let's be real, most of them aren't even people. They're figments of our imagination. They're the Jesus of our minds rather than the Jesus of the Bible. The figment of imagination, their contrived half-truths. Like the people involved in this shameful proceeding here that we're looking at this morning that was masquerading, masquerading there as a trial tried to paint Jesus as if he were one of these false Christs. They had a vendetta against Jesus and they wanted him dead because they could not accept that he was telling the truth. That this was the real Christ. They did this so much so that they were actually willing to risk death themselves to do it. Isn't that interesting? Before I read this next passage, I, I, I want you to hear this passage with this in mind. These false witnesses, if they came forward and they testified against Jesus in a capital case, and they testified falsely, they were going to be liable for the same punishment that they were trying to get him, death. They were willing to risk their very lives to, to send Jesus to the cross. Read with me in 55 through 59. It says, now the chief priests... And the whole council, that is the Sanhedrin, if I use that word, it's the same word there, uh, were re seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, 
I will destroy this temple that was made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. And yet, even about this, their testimony did not agree. How interesting that all of these people would perjure themselves, risking death simply to get rid of Jesus. Now, you might wonder, why were they looking for all these witnesses and things like that? Well, they were trying to keep some semblance of a real court proceeding. So, uh, in Deuteronomy 19.15, we read this requirement, you must not convict anyone of a crime on the testimony of only one witness. The facts of the case must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. This is back in the day where there was no recording devices or anything of that nature, right? They had to have eyewitness testimony in order to convict someone of a crime. In fact, this is the same requirement uh, to bring a charge against an elder in the church. Now, I would argue that uh, in the case where there's video evidence or recordings or things like that, then that qualifies as another person probably in those proceedings. But anyway... All that being said, what's going on here is that they are trying to find two or three people, probably three, because this is a capital case, to agree completely in their testimony. This is hard enough to do, uh, even with honest people. But when people are making up falsehoods, it's even more difficult, isn't it? Difficult to get them to really agree on all the fine details and, and things of that nature. The fact of the matter is that these statements were not based on fact. And so they, they began to obscure and, and morph when these people would be questioned based on their testimony. They'd say, oh, I heard him say this. And they'd be like, well, when was that? And then the next person would come and they'd say it was some other time or it was a different detail. They couldn't find anybody that would agree. Ultimately, a standard of truth was required. We, we need a standard of truth to determine where the lies are. We, we need, when people make false testimony about Jesus, we need some way to say, no, I know that is not the case. And I want to show you that not only do we have the scriptures so that we can compare these things, But even amongst those who seek to disparage and hate Jesus, there is so much disagreement that it becomes impossible to accept anything but Christ himself as presented to us in the word. So as a church, as as we think about who Jesus is, and not only who Jesus is, but what the word of God has said, we seek to preach and live consistently with the Bible. That's who we are as a people, as a community. We seek to understand the truth. I call it sometimes the big T truth, right? Not just some subjective reality. People like to talk about my truth, your truth, whatever else. You've heard me tirade about that before. But it's, it's the big T truth, right? The absolute truth. I have uh, in my office, I have a, a little display uh, that uh, a good friend of the family uh, gave, us, uh, gave to me, and, and it's, a, um, it's a little string, and, and it has a weight on the end of it. You know what that is? It's called a plumb line, right? It, it's to make sure that something is straight up and down. The idea is that like, you can measure how straight up and down something is simply by hanging out the plumb line. You can see 
whether it's actually plumb or not, right? Likewise, we seek to preach and live consistently with the Bible because that is our plumb line. This Bible that we have before us reveals to us the true person and work of Jesus Christ. And through that word, we can reject all falsehood. We can see him for who he truly is. We seek to embrace semper reformanda. Good Latin words for you there this morning. Write those down, you can. Semper reformanda, right? Always reforming is what it means. What is, but what does that even mean, right? What does it mean to always be reforming? Well, it doesn't have to do with being a Calvinist. It has to do with constantly reshaping what we are and who, how we believe based upon the truth of Scripture and Scripture alone. It's going, what has God said, and then shaping everything in our life around it. Always reforming. So we seek to preach consistently with the Bible and embrace those things that allow us to think and live differently. And in order to do that, we preach the Bible exclusively. It's kind of who we are as a church, if you haven't already figured that out yet. We preach the Bible exclusively here. Our sermons are never going to give you 10 ways to get rich and never worry about your health again. Go to somebody else for that. But they will give you the only way to be saved every single week. The gospel of Jesus Christ. We're going to give you the whole counsel of God. Whatever God has said, we're going to give you that every single week. But not only that, as a people, we protect ourselves against these false witnesses, these falsehoods that are uttered by the world and also people who label themselves as Christians. We protect ourselves from these things by not only preaching the Bible, but also meeting around the Bible during the week. little plug for discipleship groups and community groups you got to get together with other Christians and go, hey, what has God said? How can we apply this to our lives? We have all sorts of different ministries, but the important part of those ministries, everything that we've started, whether it's women's ministry who had a great breakfast, uh, we're calling it Mosaic Women, sorry, not got to stay with the branding, Mosaic Women. Um, I heard they had an incredible time yesterday, centered, Hey, look at that, yeah. Yeah, you're allowed to clap, that's okay. I heard it was a great time centered around the word of God, right? There's no such thing as a ministry that comes out of this church that is not centered around the word of God. We also put our faith into action by serving and supporting global ministries that take the gospel to the ends of the earth. This is a way in which we continue to try to be consistent with our beliefs because we want to live consistently with what God has said in his word. And so we protect ourselves against falsehoods by applying the word directly and committing to those things. And so this morning, many of you volunteered to make this service happen. I mean, there was probably 10 people that had their hands on just the cables up here alone. And there's many more things happening out there uh, in, the, in the rest of the church, where people have spent hard work and time to make all of that happen. You're like, how does that protect us from falsehood? It forces us to apply what we know from God's word to what we do. 
It gives us an opportunity there. Likewise, we, we also partner with local ministries to bring the gospel not just to people who end up sitting in these chairs, but elsewhere. You heard about the car wash uh, that's coming in a couple of Saturdays. It's an opportunity to put your faith into action, to find yourself more and more consistent with what God's word has said. Likewise, we give our funds to the SBCV, or the SBC cooperative program, and that goes to places like uh, the North American Mission Board and the International Mission Board, two of the largest missionary agencies in the entire world. And they go out and they preach the gospel to people. How do we protect ourselves from falsehood? We put our faith into action. We make commitments that are consistent with our faith. The last way in which we, well, the second to last way that we uh, protect ourselves from falsehood from these false Christs that are everywhere today is that we clearly state our beliefs through historic creeds, confessions, and statements of faith. So those of you who are members here have read through at least the Baptist faith message uh, as a statement of faith. Uh, we also uh, affirm the, the Nicene and Athanasian creeds if you're so interested in reading those. Uh, we also uh, uphold and, and affirm the uh, London Baptist Confession of Faith of 1689. Many of you have not read that book. I would commend it to you for your uh, edification. Uh, if David could give me an amen, that'd be great. There you go. I'm going to call him out because like, I think this is a great story. Uh, David came to me and was like, hey, I want to be a member here at Mosaic. But like, I feel convicted to read like, all of the, uh, the doctrinal documents that you have uh, listed on the website. Uh, so I need to read the 1689, and I was like, well, that's great. Uh, you just told me that you would violate your conscience if you became a member here without uh, reading that, so you're going to read that before you become a member. So I blocked him from membership until he read that thing. Um, and uh, and, and it, it, we had a great conversation the other night. It was amazing. And we're going to bring David and Nikki on as members here soon. Uh, but uh, we had a great conversation. Yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, it, it's one of those things where, like, once you start reading these doctrinal statements, whether they're very, very simple or they're very complex and, and maybe more uh, persnickety about certain things, you start asking questions and you go, is that biblical? Is that, does that come from here? Is that real? How does that work with this and that and whatever? And you start finding ways in which you maybe constructed a belief system that wasn't quite in line with what's going on here. Or maybe, maybe you find error in those documents and you go, hey, look, like, this doesn't line up with Scripture. We're more than happy to make modifications to stuff. Those are human documents, right? This, this is the only infallible rule for all of faith and life. So we use those wonderful documents to speak about who we are as people, and so we protect ourselves from falsehood by engaging with those documents and also by allowing others to engage with those documents. If other people know what we believe, they can challenge us. They can talk to us. They can have conversations with us. We can be upfront about the stuff we believe, all the doctrine, all the systematic stuff that we believe. Then people can go, hey, I think you're in error. How does this work? And we can have that conversation and we will all be better for it. But if we just stay silent on matters of doctrine, then we have problems. That's a whole other sermon. 
But ultimately, we protect ourselves from these falsehoods uttered by those who would seek to bring Christ down from his throne. They can't do it, by the way, but they try. We protect ourselves from those things because we depend on the Holy Spirit to convict our hearts where we are in error or sin. That's the last line of defense there and the first line as well. In all of these things, whether we're looking at the scriptures or, or we're thinking about how consistent our lives are with what the scriptures say, ultimately we depend on the Holy Spirit to sanctify us. That's the theological word. We depend on him to show us where we have been wrong. Of course, none of these things will prevent every error or inconsistency. Inconsistencies are a fact of life, aren't they? We're human beings, right? You don't have to be a completely, perfectly consistent Christian in order to get to heaven, praise God. Otherwise, I'm not going. I'm not perfect. But where you start seeing more and more inconsistency in teaching, in doctrine, in comments made, when in lives lived, start asking questions. Begin asking questions. If someone is trying to lead you to believe something and their life is inconsistent with, with, with what they're saying, ask some questions. You might want to either steer clear or help to correct them, depending on who they are. These false teachers, whether they label themselves as Christians or not, will begin to twist the truth or fabricate outright lies. And the, the thing is, it's hard for them to keep things straight, just like it was for these people who testified against Jesus here, verse 59, yet even about this, that is, even about this one story that they told, their testimony did not agree. They couldn't keep it all straight. There's a, an old saying, uh, what a tangled web we weave when first we practice to deceive. Good little nursery rhyme kind of thing, right? Um, I stole that from uh, I Love Lucy <laughs> at one point. Um, but it's true, right? You think about uh, if you're a Marvel fan, you like uh, any of you Marvel fans a little bit? Yeah, some of you like Marvel movies. The multiverse, right? The multiverse, right? That every single permutation of every possibility exists sort of stacked on top of one another. Doesn't exist. Doesn't exist. But in the, the, for the person who begins to deceive, begins to lie, begins to twist the truth, it shoots off this branch into nowhere, and they have to continue to try to keep things close to the truth, but they end up fracturing all over the place. There's no consistency, because they're not in the truth. They're trying to stand over here and there's this gravitational force that wants to pull everything back into line. And we're going to see that people cannot keep things straight in this passage. Like I said, verse 59, even about this, their testimony did not agree. And so where you see these growing inconsistencies, let your alarm bells go off and start asking questions. When somebody tells you that God wants you to be healthy and wealthy, look at Paul's life in chains. Go, go look at that. Consider the manner of life of most of the apostles. They didn't live opulent lives. Now, God may give you material possessions, but that is not necessarily a sign of his favor or lack thereof. 
If someone tells you that God welcomes all people into heaven, regardless of where they place their faith, only that they believe with their whole heart, then consider the fact that Jesus said that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. John 14, 6. Deviation from the truth, bringing it back. If someone tries to tell you that you are enough, or that God will never give you more than you can handle, Consider the call of Jonah to preach to Nineveh. I think it was more than he could handle, wasn't it? Or maybe Paul's statement that he can do all things not by himself, but through Christ who strengthened him. You are not enough, but Christ is enough. The people who accused Jesus couldn't get their stories straight because they denied the truth, and it was really easy to go off into a thousand different directions. They couldn't bear the thought, though, that Jesus might actually be telling the truth. They couldn't think that maybe, maybe, this guy was real. And the reason none of this agreed was because that was the truth. All they wanted to do was paint him as a criminal, and it didn't matter what the details were. This is also true of the world today. Their battle cry seems to be anything, anything, but Jesus. Seriously, you hear all of this talk about accepting people of different religions and, and, and belief systems and things like that. And it's like, oh yeah, everybody's just going to be in a big melting pot and super happy. And then they're like, but the Christians, they stand out there. That's the way the, work, the world works right now. The Christians, they have to stand out there. The rest of us, we're all fine. We're all fine. Them, they got to go. And the Sanhedrin felt the same way. Anything, anything but this guy. Yet Jesus does not go out of his way to correct their error in this moment. Isaiah 53, 7 says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Jesus didn't seek to defend himself here. He didn't address the falsehoods there. I'm not saying we should take this tactic. Right? This is Jesus. He's doing what he does. But I want to point out that he fulfilled this scripture and did not respond to the falsehoods being uttered against him because he knew that they were going to be proven to be true, but that the falsehoods were going to be proven to be false. Sorry. But he did speak. He did speak. But he did it not to answer his accusers, but to answer the one who actually spoke the truth. Verse 60 through 62. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, and this is the truth, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus finally answers. He finally answers, I am. And you will see the son of man seated on the, at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Jesus doesn't respond to all the different falsehoods. He knows that they're going to fall apart. But when the man 
finally says what is true. He says, are you the Christ? Son of the blessed. Blessed there is, a, is a, another way to say God. They were afraid of saying the, the name of God, and so they would uh, often uh, take different words and place them there. Blessed is, uh, you know, it's, in your ESV, uh, it's capitalized, right? It means God. He said, are you the Christ, son of the blessed? He's like, yes, I am. He doesn't say, yes, I am. He just says, I am. Powerful words. In the Greek, that is ego eimi. Those same words are used in the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament. When God says, I am, that I am. Jesus isn't just saying, oh yeah, that's me. He's saying, I am. And he declares what he has been saying the entire time in his ministry. You will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power. That is also God, by the way. God the Father. And coming with the clouds of heaven. This is a fulfillment of his prophecy from Mark chapter 13. Speaking of his second coming. The Son of Man is an interesting way for Jesus to refer to himself. I think we've talked about it before a bit. Um, Jesus refers to himself mostly as the Son of Man, in fact. And by applying that, that particular nomenclature to himself, uh, he's identifying himself as the Son of Man in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. It says this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. This is the Jesus we worship. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. He is the Son of Man, the Son of God, and God the Son. He is our one mediator, the Theanthropos, the God-man, fully God and fully man. He died a sinner's death, rose from the grave, and now sits at the right hand of God the Father making intercession for his people. And he is the victorious king who will come again to judge the living and the dead. And when he comes, you will see him seated at the right hand of God the Father in power, coming in the clouds of heaven. That is what Jesus said here. There is none like him. Those who distort the truth about Jesus will not ultimately succeed. They may for a time be permitted to walk in arrogant, high-handed sin, deceiving even if possible the elect. But on that last day, everyone, not a single person left out, everyone will know precisely who Jesus is, won't they? There's no one like him. Yet there may be darkness for a time. Feel the darkness of this world today? There was darkness in this passage. There was darkness in that day when Jesus stood before the Sanhedrin and in the middle of the night as our Savior was called a blasphemer. 
and condemned to death by his own people. Verse 63 through 65. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his test. There's blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. The end of this passage isn't comfortable, is it? The God of the universe, incarnate, being accused of a capital crime, mocked and beaten. Not a comfortable place to end it, is it? It's uncomfortable to think about the Son of God humbling himself to allow this. Hebrews 1.3 says that Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. Not to try to lighten the mood too much, but like you said, you're Marvel fans, so here I go. Remember in, the, uh, in Avengers, I forget which Avengers movie it is, the one where Thanos gets the glove, right? He snaps his fingers and everybody turns to dust, right? Like, you guys, some of you guys remember this. You know what I'm talking about, right? He, he, long story short, supervillain gets a glove that can take out half the universe, he does it, okay? All right, so he snaps his fingers and everyone turns to dust, right? Jesus didn't even have to snap his fingers. Can you imagine that? He didn't even have to snap his fingers. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. All Jesus had to do was stop willing those people to exist, and they would have been blotted out, not from life, but from history. That is all he had, all he had to do was stop willing them to exist, and yet he allowed himself to be labeled a blasphemer for our sakes, to be beaten and spat upon and struck for our sakes. uncomfortable. Do you know you? Are you worth that? Do you know yourself? I don't feel like I'm worth that. The God of the universe? Letting that happen to himself? It, it's uncomfortable. It's, it's strange. It's unfathomable. The amount of grace and humility that is given to us and seen in Jesus Christ. but it was necessary. It was the only way. It was the only way. I had this conversation a couple of nights ago with Dan and Amber talking about, I don't know how we got in there. We ran, ran down a bunch of great little rabbit trails as we talked for a little while and uh, talking about how it was necessary for Jesus to be both fully God and fully man. Only one who is fully man could stand and be a mediator for us. He, only he could be our great high priest. Only a man could be our great high priest. The one who represents us before God. God himself as spirit cannot represent man, a created creature. And yet he took upon himself human nature to be able to represent us. But only God, only God 
could take on the sins of the world and rise again. Jesus is fully God, fully man. This uncomfortable situation in which we leave ourselves this morning was necessary. But of course, it's not over, is it? The Sanhedrin condemned Jesus, but they were a puppet court. They didn't have any real power, actually. Isn't that interesting? They did all of this simply to recommend Jesus for death. They couldn't actually go out and perform capital punishment. The Romans had power. If they had gone out and performed capital punishment by themselves, that would have been a a large no-no from the Romans. They couldn't do this on their own, but they took him to Rome, they took him to Pilate, and ultimately the Romans crucified Jesus. But we know the end of the story, don't we? It doesn't end in a borrowed grave. It ends as Jesus promised. Not simply as him rising and being seated at the right hand of God the Father. No. The story ends as Jesus promised with him coming in the clouds and power. The story's not over yet, but we know how it ends. If you're thinking about whether Jesus is worth it, think about that. He's coming. There's a promise. There's hope. Today, as we think about Back to School Sunday, and I think about, like I said, the, the state of the world as it stands, um, I think about all the pressures that the teachers and the parents and the students face with whether it's public school or private school, I don't care where you go. There's, there's stuff everywhere. I think about how the world is going to be in 10, 15, 20 years. And I, I, I can't imagine it. I don't know what it's going to look like. I can't imagine it. And, but as I think about those things, I'm reminded more and more how much we need Jesus, don't we? We need him deeply, every single day. This Jesus who suffered for our sakes and then brings us into glory, brings us into unity with one another. Some see all the things that are going on in this world and they believe that Jesus is coming very soon. Very soon. I'll be honest with you, I don't know with any certainty. I still hold to what Jesus said, no man knows the day or the hour. And yet... I can say this with absolute certainty, that we are closer today than we have ever been to his return. You see the the world being torn to shreds by all these different forces and things like that. We're closer. We're closer. But I look forward to that day when we see him face to face, when he comes in the clouds of power, because that is a good day for his people, isn't it? For those who do not believe in Christ, that is a day of judgment and a day of terror. But for those who trust in him, that is a day of great rejoicing. Can you imagine that day? I feel like I'd finally be able to breathe. Like, I'd see it and I would be awestruck and yet there would be a weight lifted. It's all true and I can see it with my eyes. I don't have to just believe with my heart. It's not just unseen faith anymore. It's 
right there before me. I'm looking forward to that day. Come, Lord Jesus, come, should be our battle cry every day. But whether he comes today, tomorrow, or hundreds of years from now, he will ever be our only hope for peace, our only hope for transformation, our only hope for salvation, and our only hope for eternity. That's our Jesus. As we go from here today, my prayer is that God would help us stay close to Jesus, that he would show us who he truly is, that he would guard us from lies and falsehoods, and that he would cause us to persevere in faith and hope through every circumstance, because Christ alone is both our suffering servant and our victorious king. Thanks for listening to the Mosaic Church Sermon Podcast. For more information about Mosaic, including location and service times, or to support us financially, visit our website at mosaicrva.com or find us on Instagram and Facebook at Mosaic Church RVA. Remember, it's not about us, it's all about Jesus.